Hello, welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. This month's podcast is sponsored by Dr. H. Rejoint. Dr. Robert Padaya, a pioneer in functional medicine, has formulated Dr. H. Rejoint, an herbal muscle and joint supplement that normalizes the molecular function of tumor necrosis factor alpha and NF-kappa B, the so-called grand central stations of inflammation. Dr. Lerman and Dr. Kornberg, both formerly with Metagenics as directors of medicine and medical education, noted remarkable benefits with this product and called it revolutionary in the management of people with joint and muscle discomfort. For more information about Dr. H. Rejoint and our professional program, go to rejointyourself.com and use my discount code, which is DRKARA. That's a Dr. Kara. Thank you. I'm so excited to have Dr. Robert Hadaya with me today. Um, he is a pioneer in the field of functional medicine. I have been aware of his work, heard him lecture uh, for my entire career. And let me tell you a little bit about him. He's the founder of the National Center for Whole Psychiatry in Chevy Chase, Maryland, as well as Functional Herbals, LLC, the makers of Dr. H. Rejoint, an herbal anti-inflammatory that works, by the way. Uh, he's board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. He's a clinical professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University Medical Center, an active member of the Endocrine Society, certified as proficient in psychopharmacology by the American Society of Clinical Psychopharmacology. He's a faculty member at the Institute for Functional Medicine, and has been recognized as a certified clinician in functional medicine. Dr. Hadaya is a recipient of the Physician's Recognition Award from the American Medical Association and has been voted Outstanding Teacher of the Year multiple times by the students at Georgetown University Medical Center's Department of Psychiatry. He's authored books for both pra practitioners and consumers and has been featured as an expert consultant numerous times in the media. He writes a blog for Psychology Today. Dr. Hodaya is the developer of Whole Psychiatry Methodology, which we'll talk about today, uh, in addition to the functional approach to psychiatry, which offers a comprehensive physiologic and psychosocial spiritual approach to mental health and chronic physical illness. His method evaluates and treats mind-body dysfunction by focusing on the detailed evaluation and bidirectional interactions between and among a person's hormonal system, immune system, gastrointestinal system, nutrition, environment, social spirit, spiritual status, genetics, detoxification, cell signaling, life circumstance, age, and gender. Dr. Hadaya, it's wonderful to have you. Oh, it's great to be with you, Kara. Thank you very much for the introduction, and uh, I guess it's been a long uh, trek from Brooklyn for me. <laughs> yeah, you... <laughs> I've accumulated all that stuff. And I want to mine some of it today. Um, most, you know, our clinicians will be so interested in pearls from your years of experience, and I know that you will uh, give us many. So I, w I really want to jump right in and talk about this concept of whole psychiatry. Uh, you practice functional medicine. You're a faculty with me over at IFM, and you're certified, so you took that long, large test, as did I. But what's the difference between whole psychiatry and functional psychiatry? Uh, that's, that's a great question, and I think it's, it's important conceptually. I think uh, when we think of functional medicine or functional psychiatry, we think of the different nodes 
Uh, we think of the antecedents, triggers, mediators, lifestyle factors, and we have different categories of things that we look at that interact with each other. The reason I call it whole psychiatry is because there has to be room in your mind and your approach to the patient for the fact that you don't know. Actually, you don't know a lot more than you think you don't know. Mm. And you have to realize that the paradigm you're using today in 10 years or 5 years or 20 years is actually going to be uh, outdated. Mm. And so this is very important because what enabled me to get into, uh, whether you call it functional medicine, whole psychiatry, or functional psychiatry, was the ability to say, hey, my paradigm's not working. Mm-hmm. I have evidence that it's not working. Okay, what's going on here? Right. So that's why I call it whole psychiatry because you have to be, as much as we love functional medicine, we have to understand that a day is going to come with where functional medicine paradigm will not be adequate. We'll build on it. We'll step outside of it. Ah, right, right, right. So really expanding and being open, recognizing yeah. the limits of one's own knowledge with regard to the right. patient sitting in front of us. Got it. Yeah, I like to say that if, if, you, if, you, uh, you know, if you don't think out of the box... You stay in the box, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Can and, you and can you give me an can you give me an example of that? Is there anything you know where you needed to step outside of the box? Well, outside. I mean, we're already as functional medicine doctors outside of the box, and where you needed right. to step out even further with regard to whole psychiatry. Like, how, when did you? When did you? How did you develop it? Sort of. When did you face that? Uh, you mean coming from the uh, functional or whole psychiatry method? When did I step outside of the box of that? Out of that box? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, well, okay. This is a very good example. I, I actually uh, manufacture an herb, mm-hmm. right? And right. it's it's a, this Dr. H Rejoint herb, which is anti-inflammatory, and and I developed it. Um, I injured myself biking. Mm-hmm. And this was uh, maybe four years ago or something like that. And uh, I was doing not only traditional methods, but I was working on my diet and, you know, stretching and, uh, you know, whatever I could think of, lifestyle, et cetera. Um, but it didn't, it didn't get better. And so then I kind of stepped out of my paradigm, yeah. which was to look at okay, what, you know, meds aren't working and acupuncture's not working and chiropractic isn't working and changing my mattress isn't working. What, right. what can I do? So I started to do a little research on herbs mm-hmm. and, you know, did more and more. And, you know, long story short, developed this, this thing, that, this formula that uh, pretty much in two days took, got rid of my pain. And there's a whole story after that. But I really had to step into another world. Right. Because really, I never really knew enough about herbs to really give them much credence. Now I'll tell you that if I was going back for my training today, mm-hmm. I would probably study uh, herbs before psychopharmacology. Right. Or at least, or at least with psychopharmacology, they're very, as you probably know, very powerful. But for me, that wasn't in my box. That wasn't uh. in my. You see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's such a great example. And there are many, many uh, powerful 
traditional healing methods, you know, globally, that we may need to expand our awareness around just, you know, as you talk about in this experience. Okay, that's a good, that's a great example. And I know we'll come back to your, your product again. Um, because mechanistically, you know, being anti-inflammatory, it would be applicable in um, a number of instances, not just mu muscle and joint. I mean, you know, as I, I know, we'll, we'll talk about the inflammation association with psychiatric illness, and, and, and we can right. circle back to talking about this as well. Uh, but so that said, you know, getting back to thinking about functional medicine, what are the advantages of using the functional medicine model with uh, mental health? Uh, well, it's, it's actually, it's huge. I think I've said this before, I'll say it again. In my opinion, if you really look at the data, um, practicing standard psychiatry without functional medicine is akin to malpractice, not in the legal sense, but in the sense of poor practice. There's a tremendous, as you know, everybody listening knows, there's a tremendous body of evidence that shows that all of the nodes on our matrix uh, all influence mental health, mental function, brain function, etc. So uh, the basic, the bottom line is, you know, better health, less medicine. That's the basic uh, bottom line of the advantage. Yeah. Got it. And folks, those of you who are not familiar with the functional medicine matrix and the nodes that Bob is referring to, I will put the PDF. Uh, we'll up, well, you, you can actually see that there's a PDF you can download with the um, matrix nodes on them, and I'll put a link over to the IFM uh, so that you can read about it. All right, so let's, let's go through the nodes. Let's go through the matrix and... Um, Talk to me about how each one of them can apply to mental health. Okay. Um, all right. So what I use in my mind is a, a little mnemonic, which uh, I find helpful. Uh, and it's did, uh, like I did, and mm -hmm. gone, G-O-N-E, D-I-D-G-O-N-E. Uh, so D is digestion, I is immune, infectious, inflammatory, uh, D is detox, then G is genetics, O is oxidative stress, N is nutrition, and E has two meanings. One is uh, endocrine and the other is epigenetics. Mm -hmm. So if we start with uh, digestion, clearly, um, as we uh, many people know, so much of uh, what affects our, our overall health happens in the gastrointestinal tract. Now, you have to, when you eat, let's not talk right now about what you're eating, because that would go on the nutrition. Uh, when you do eat something, you have to be able to break it down, and you have to be able to absorb the nutrients within that food, right? So mm -hmm. if you're on a, a patient comes in with a, um, who's on a, uh, an acid blocker, I, here's a fabulous story. I had a patient who I was actually treated the first time in 1985 for panic disorder, he was, I don't know, in his 20s, and he was hospitalized with panic and depression. And I treated him uh, standard treatment, cognitive therapy, medication. And, uh, and then when Prozac came out, I switched him from his MAO inhibitor, put him on that, and we did some group therapy and individual therapy, and then he was stable. And then uh, maybe 10, 15 years into the course of treatment, 
uh, he came in to me and uh, he was having panic attacks again. Now, I know that if someone's stable on a medication and, and now they're having breakthrough symptoms, something else is going on. He's trying to convince me to change medications. Let's go on the medication merry-go-round. Mm-hmm. And I refused. Right. So taking a good history, it turns out that his uh, father died. He had to leave his career and, and uh, take over the family business. And his mother was a bipolar woman who was creating havoc. His wife uh, developed fibromyalgia, chronic, chronic fatigue. She had been sexually abused when she was young. So she became unemployed. I mean, you could see the world kind of came crashing down around him. Right. And uh, he started to get anxious and overeat. And so he went to his internist. He was having reflux. They put him on Prilosec. Mm-hmm. That was a year before. Prilosec inhibits the absorption of B12. Right. right. B12 can, uh, deficiency can cause any kind of psychiatric, neuropsychiatric syndrome. So it took me a year to convince him to do a workup, believe mm. it or not. Finally he did, and sure enough he was deficient, and I gave him uh, injections of B12, and, and you know it was just a matter of a few weeks, and he was completely uh, better. So that's a digestive issue, which obviously connected to stress and Mm -hmm. his ability to absorb B12. But, of course, it could be breaking down proteins and absorbing the proteins or breaking down and absorbing fats. You can have bacterial overgrowth of the small intestine, which impairs the absorption of of B12. Or you can have uh, other problems with uh, infectious agents, etc. So that's just a little overview of the digestion, but the digestion is critical to have the basic building blocks of neurotransmitters and healthy media, you know, molecular mediators, etc. Right. So, so that would be digestion. The immune system, I, I take a special interest in the immune system. Uh, the immune system uh, plays a big role in mental health. Um, and, uh, just uh, to give you an example of that, uh, I have a, a family who I've been treating. I started treating the grandfather, then I treated the father of this this girl that I saw. She was 14. She came in. She was a star athlete and straight-A student, sweetest girl. And she came in, and she had deteriorated in intellectual function, academic function, social function over the course of a year. Well, turned out uh, she had Lyme disease. Mm. So I gave her minocycline because it penetrates the blood-brain barrier and right. has, you know, effects within the brain. It's actually a good gradu- anti-inflammatory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, over time, uh, she improved. Now, what, what does immune activation do? Um, obviously, lots of things, but when you, you have a uh, shunting, one of the important things is that uh, if you do have tryptophan in your system, then the tryptophan is not converted as efficiently into serotonin, right? right. So you have a deficiency of serotonin, you have excess dopamine, and, and instead of the tryptophan going down the normal pathway, it gets shunted into the, uh, the quinolinic acid kynurenin pathway. Right. And um, then what you have is activation of the microglia and astroglia, imbalances and you have excitatory neurotransmitters, glutamate, which cause anxiety. So 
So that's just a little piece of what happens when the uh, the immune system is activated from what uh, uh, whatever the cause is. I mean, it could be yes. mold. Right. It could be Lyme, right? Infectious could be from the gut. Yes. You know, when the immune system is activated, the brain chemistry changes. So That's, that's a huge statement. <laughs> I mean, we, yeah. I want to say it again because it's huge. So when the immune system is activated, the brain chemistry changes, period. That's right. So that's you're, right. And, and, it, and the important thing here is it's anywhere in the body. Yes, because there are four pathways known, uh, maybe there are more now, but the last time I checked there were four pathways known by which peripheral body infection inflammation uh, causes changes in, in brain uh, neurochemistry. So uh, that's it's, it's critical. I mean, plays in the whole thing, into pandas, which yes. uh, if you, you want to talk about it, we can. Well, you can uh, you can briefly just briefly touch on it. Um. Well, pandas is is a situation where uh, children who are uh, act they become exposed to strep, right? And the, what happens is the immune system reads the strep and reacts and creates antibodies against the a certain protein in the streptococcal uh, bacteria, and it happens to cross react with proteins in certain parts of the brain. And these proteins attack those parts of the brain which happen to be involved in, uh, for example, the cingulate gyrus. These, these are parts of the brain that are involved with OCD. Yes. So you can have a child who could be fine today, gets a strep infection this afternoon, and in two or three days they turn into a case of severe OCD. Right. And uh, if they do pl uh, plasmapheresis, clearing the the uh, blood of these antibodies, then the OCD clears up. Mm -hmm. It's, it's uh, really remarkable. So that yes. tells us, again, another example of how the immune system is critical in, in brain function and mental function. Yes. I can't, can't emphasize that enough to the listeners, that that is critical when dealing with mental health issues. Thank you so much. It's such, a, such an important point. Um, and I just want to point out that they've implicated a number of other infectious triggers for this whole um, this whole presentation of OCD. Actually, it's and I think mm -hmm. Lyme Lyme is is one of them. Correct? Lyme is one of them, and I'll I'll give you another case which I think is is a fascinating case. This this guy came to me. He was 18 years old, and he was actually going to be going to Princeton. Um, and, but he had this severe case of OCD, so he, his, he didn't want to take meds or, or do any therapy, so his parents brought him to me, and uh, he had a contracture of one of his fingers, so he hadn't straightened out his finger in two or three years because he had a superstition hmm. that if he, if he did, something bad would happen. Now, if you looked at him, perfectly normal guy, but he has this severe OCD. So we did a workup, and it turns out he had five different infections. And he had, um, you know, I, I, this is five, six years ago, so I can't really tell you, but there were three in his gut and a couple of others. And uh, anyway, we treated them. It didn't take long. And uh, by three months from, from the onset of treatment, his OCD was completely gone with the treatment of the infections and some cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. No meds. Wow. No meds at all. 
and is really basically was dealing with his immune system and and just kind of re you know correcting his uh, behaviors and his thinking. And so we're looking at primarily bacterial infections you identified or viral also. Yeah, he had yeast. He had bacterial okay. uh, infections. Uh, they were he had, he had a parasite. Mm-hmm. Uh, so oh wow! Variety of things. Okay. Okay. Got it. And in your approach, I know this is a while ago, but are you using, you're you're using diet for those who are willing to go in that direction, lifestyle, et cetera. Obviously, you're doing therapy. Are you using um, uh, primarily antimicrobials, pharmaceutical antimicrobials, which I know are important in some of these more intense infections, or have you tried uh, alternative in- interventions? Yeah, well, I, I I have tried alternative interventions, and I didn't have great results. And that could be because mm-hmm. I don't have enough training in that in that area. So, um, I of course obviously do all the other uh, things like diet and probiotics, prebiotics. But um, I'll use antibiotics if I need to, or you know, well, they uh, anti antifungals, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they're important tools, and you know, when well applied. You know, especially in these few cases you've just given us, I think they're they're truly lifesavers. Um, yeah. So you know, it's interesting. You're talking about the whole quinolinate, you know, kynurenin pathway, and um, obviously, you know, just going back to the product that you designed, uh, I mean, that could be an appropriate intervention. I mean, it's going to modulate quinolinate production by just, you know blunting the whole inflammatory cascade. I mean, it's going to preserve, it has the potential to preserve serotonin, which incidentally gets converted to melatonin. So just, mm-hmm. has, I mean, you're, you know, so even though you're directing it towards, towards joint and back, that it, it could, in certain individuals, work as a mild antidepressant. Have you seen that in practice? Um, I, I wish I could say yes, um, but I can't. I can say that uh, in theory, I would agree. First of all, if you're sleeping better because you have less pain, yes, you know you should you should feel better. And if you have a lot less inflammation, you certainly should feel better. You should have improvement in your memory and your anxiety and your your mood and uh, etc. So, uh, but I haven't looked at, at it for that. I've just really used it where. Um, I see people having a musculoskeletal problems, some, sometimes neurological problems, uh, autoimmune problems, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had a few people tell me that it gives them energy, but uh, mm-hmm. that because one, uh, uh, it can increase serotonin, but it can also actually increase histamine. One of the herbs can increase histamine. So, um, but in theory, you're right. But I, I'm not. I haven't tracked that. I haven't seen it or heard it reported. Right. Well, I mean, you also have boswellia in there, which is going to inhibit, you know, the leukotriene. So it's going to be right. a good agent towards allergies in some. Anyway, uh, I just wanted to ask you. I wanted to circle back to something that you said, and then we'll move on to talking about methylation. But you know, so if you've got this, the quinolinate kynurenin pathway upregulated and you've got this glutamatergic excitotoxicity happening, um, serotonin is low and dopamine is high. I'm, you know, what is the clinical presentation of that elevated dopamine, brain dopamine, low brain serotonin? Well, OCD would be one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's 
uh, under the heading of an anxiety disorder, and so certainly you'll have anxiety. Right. Um, you'll have you'll have mood instability. Uh, you could have panic attacks. You certainly could have depression. Um, and uh, you know, does it impact in in uh, bipolar disorder for sure? Mm-hmm. Uh, schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is uh, tougher to say. Does it have an impact? Yes. Is it a layer in any psychiatric disorder? Yes. Uh, if you have immune dysregulation in any psychiatric disorder, that is going to play a role. How much it plays in each person, you know, Varies. will vary, but it'll o- always play a role. Right. Um, so. so let me, um, I want to just jump ahead because <laughs> you're really, yeah. you're getting me thinking here. And I just, I just want to ask about the enzyme catechol-O-methyltransferase, which metabolizes dopamine, um, norepinephrine, epinephrine, estrogens, etc. And so if you've got this inflammatory picture and this imbalance, this low serotonin and this, you would have higher brain dopamine because of the inflammation, but then you can't metabolize it either because of this mutation in COMT. I just just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that because I know that you've, you know, you've thought about the influences of these single nucleotide polymorphisms and so answer mm-hmm. that one, and then if you want to go more broadly around thinking about genetics, we can we can move into that. But we will circle back to methylation, folks. I promise. Well, so if you if you look at it, you know, in a simple sense, as you're talking about, so mm-hmm. you have a lot of you know you've got a lot of dopamine, uh, maybe you have a lot of estrogen, et cetera, and you have trouble um, because your COMT uh, is sluggish. Uh, you're not able to break down these neurotransmitters, you have more of these neurotransmitters in the synapse, therefore stimulating the postsynaptic neuron. So then, depending where that's happening, you are going to have more symptoms of whether mm-hmm. it's anxiety or activation or instability, etc. The, the, speaking more broadly, though, and, and I don't know if you know, I, I uh, led a panel discussion at the May IFM Symposium on Genetics and Mental Health, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, we had uh, three uh, presenters from different labs presenting uh, what they thought were the most important uh, tests in mental health uh, and why they thought they were very important. And um, I think my, my, and I've spent a lot of time on this genetic stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, I uh, got involved with um, um, somebody who, who people may know, I don't want to mention a name, but who does a lot of genetic work around methylation. Mm-hmm. And um, long story short, um, genetics are very, very complex. Yes. Um, so if you have, let's just take your example. If you have somebody who has a sluggish COMT, they have a double SNP, so they really have a sluggish COMT. Yes. Well, you can't really look at that in isolation. That's I have right. found clinically that you cannot make a really great correlation if you see someone who have, has that SNP. Good. That depends really on what's going on with the MTHFR and the SAMe production, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that also depends on you know how sensitive are the reuptake uh, pumps? What, do they have a serotonin uh, transporter defect? Um, you know, there, there's so many modifying factors uh, that it's 
in a certain sense, um, don't hang your hat so much on these genes. Now, is it worth doing some testing? If, if it's covered by insurance, it's a piece of information. Yes. But uh, always realize that you're dealing not only with the SNPs, but also how, how methylated are the SNPs themselves? Are those genes turned on or are they turned off? Right, right. Uh, in psych, you know, it, it's just very, very complex, and these are only little uh, hints at what you might consider. Yes. Now, to take, take the other side... Of the argument, I did uh, a test uh, through Genomind. I, I used different mm-hmm. labs, and I did a test through Genomind on a patient who was about 70, and his sister brought him to me because uh, he was diagnosed as schizophrenic. And what, what happened, the real history is that he, uh, born normal, uh, had uh, encephalitis uh, or meningitis, and, and probably encephalitis. And anyway, he was deaf after an infectious process at age four. He went along, did fine, and became a mathematician and then worked for NASA in the 60s. And uh, they were doing some experiments, uh, pre- preparation for the flight to the moon, and they, they put him and other people who had uh, certain types of deafness into, uh, you know, um, like giant centrifuges, and they would spin them around for hours at a time to mimic some of the things that would happen in space. And... Uh, Around that time, he had a head injury, and then about a year later, when he was about 30 or 31, he started to hear voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this went on. He quit his job. He eventually uh, went to Alaska because he thought whoever was put in, putting these voices in his head wouldn't be able to find them. And, right. you know, anyway, he came into my office, and he seemed like the nicest guy certainly didn't appear schizophrenic, and I was able to tease out the history. And then I did some testing, and I tested his CAC and A1C, calcium channel, uh, which is a very important genetic uh, marker. There's a lot of literature coming out about that. And his abnormality made me think that I should give him calcium channel blockers. Hmm. And uh, gradually, over the course of several months, along with other functional medicine interventions, um, he actually started to have days where he wasn't hearing voices. And wow. for the first time in, in year, about 40, 40 years or something along those lines. So it, it's, it's not a slam dunk, but that did kind of tip me off. So my message really is genetics. I mean, there's a lot of push from these companies to order the genetics. Some of them you can get through Quest and LabCorp. They're covered by the insurance. Um, you know, look at them, you can use them, but use them uh, judiciously. It's not like, oh, you have this, therefore this. Yes. Because all of these genes are modified by other genes and by experience and by methylation factors and acetylation factors, etc. Yes, that's right. Thank you for that very nice, um, I think, uh, realistic assessment of the utility. And, you know, when we look at the genome-wide association studies, you know, for the various SNPs and diseases, they're not, you know, they're just not really strong at this point in the game. I think as we move into really being able to data capture and systems in a true systems model, we'll be able to... um, you know, we'll be able to glean more, but I think you're right. There are there are just profound, profound number of, of variables, so I, I appreciate that. But tell me about, I just want to know a little bit around your reasoning for treating 
this gentleman with schizophrenia with a calcium channel blocker. I mean, you identified that SNP. What's the, connect the dots for me in the, in, in, in the association with schizophrenia. Well, well, I would say this. First of all, I don't think schizophrenia was an appropriate diagnosis ah, for okay. him. Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't say, um, you know, treat schizophrenics with calcium channel blockers. I don't know that there's much evidence for that. Um, in his case, I think that it was a function of, uh, like, uh, multiple antecedents and trauma that were presenting basically causing an instability, a neuronal instability because of this uh, depolarization, excessive instability in certain neurons that maybe were injured from both his uh, infection at age four and then the, I don't know what this NASA experiment did, and then the head injury. So I think it was like a multiple hit theory combined with a genetic vulnerability uh, in terms of the depolarization and stability of his of the neurons, uh, causing it, which happened to happen in some part of a neuronal tract that was processing auditory or generating auditory stimuli. Follow? Yeah, you know it's so brilliant. <laughs> I'm just thinking. I did an interview for the IMJC recently, and they. Um, or CJ, they asked me about, that's Integrative Medicine Clinicians Journal, I think, that, and, and they were, we were uh. talking about case studies specifically and, and just about codifying our knowledge, and, and I mean, we need to codify this. I mean, you've just presented every single case you've talked about today on this podcast. They're just extremely interesting and remarkable, and um, it would be nice to... Uh, you know, if you feel like writing, in all your free time, writing some of these yeah. cases, I know you don't <laughs> have any. Anybody's, if anybody's <laughs> listening and wants to write it up, give me a call. It's just, you know? it's just so, it's just so interesting to me. And anyway, let's, let's just, what, you've mentioned methylation a few times, and of course it's, you know, it's been a huge buzzword for some time, and you've already talked about this more nuanced approach, which I'm so in agreement with you on, um, but talk about methylation in psychiatry. Okay, well, so that gets a lot of press. Now, in a yeah. simple way, a simple way, uh, there are studies that show that, um, and it's been repeated, uh, that if you give someone fluoxetine um, and, um, and you give them uh, folic acid, just straight folic acid, Mm -hmm. uh, 15, 1,5 to 5,0 milligrams. Mm -hmm. You will both reduce side effects and improve response rate uh, significantly. Wow. Um, so why? Well, the reason why is because you're improving neurotransmitter production. You're, you're activating the folate, folate cycle. Now, um, do we know how many of those people had MTHFR deficiencies, um, we don't know. Were they, most of them not, and that's why the folate worked. We don't know. But in, in practice, what I do is I, uh, I do a few things. And one is, you know, obviously do a CBC, look at the red blood cell count, look at the MCV, which is the size of the red blood cells, and look at the homocysteine, my cutoff uh, normal in my mind, uh, uh, a homocysteine would be eight. Mm -hmm. And... Um, 
over the years, the upper limit has gone down from 21 to 19.9 to 18.9. It just keeps going down. So yeah. in my mind, 8 is the upper limit of where I'd like it to be. Um, and I look at iron indices. And um, so when you look at all these things, you can look at the dynamics. Um, and you don't even necessarily have to have the MTHFR if the uh, genetic test. If someone can afford it, great. That's another piece. But you can, by looking at the MCV and the iron and the RBC, you can see, okay, where's the balance here in terms of production of red blood cells? And where's the balance in terms of the size of the red blood cells? So if your iron indices are normal yeah. and your MCV is high, you know, that kind of, and your RBC number is low, you tipped off to a B12 deficiency, uh -huh. right? Uh, however, you could have a normal uh, MCV uh, and you could have a B12 deficiency because you're also iron deficient. The right. iron deficiency p pushes you to microcytosis and the B12 to macrocytosis. So, and then you, of course, look at the homocysteine, which will tell you about B12 and folate. Uh, it's not specific. Um, based on those things, and if you get the genetic test, then you can intervene with uh, methylfolate or folic acid. Um, now, the, one of the effects of, of intervening there is to increase the production of SAM-E, right? And you mm -hmm. could also give SAM-E directly, but SAM-E, you have to know, can, can help or can backfire. Right. Uh, because SAM-E can uh, help the COMT enzyme to function because you need that methyl donor to help COMT break down the neurotransmitters uh, but also, SAMe can go towards production of neurotransmitters. So yes. it really, it, you know, you have to test it carefully. Um, uh, so, you know, that's a kind of a overview of how I work with it. The, the last thing I, I would like to say is uh, it's uh, fashionable now or fad mm -hmm. to use tons of methylating agents. And, yes. Um, you know, even that study on Prozac and uh, 15 to 50 milligrams of folic acid, we have no idea what that is doing to the genetic function in all of the other genes. Right. So if you need to use it for someone who has, say, a mood disorder, uh, use it. But follow the indices and also use it for as short a period as possible. Um, I, I used methylated folate to treat a woman with endometriosis. It cured her endometriosis because uh, endometriosis, uh, in part, is a methylation, a genetic methylation defect. Um, so there are places for these things, but don't overdo it. Right. Don't overdo it. Thank you. Did you, um, I, I'm in such, I'm in complete agreement with you. There are many, many unknowns with regard to the, sort of the yin and yang of, methylation, demethylation in the epigenome that we are, that are big mm -hmm. question marks for us and right. could be, you know, oncogenic or not. So I, I, I do think, right. I think, I think caution is, is, is very smart. Um, so with this endometriosis patient, uh, did you, did you look at uh, any SNPs in her or did you just do a, a therapeutic probe as, as David Jones says? No, no, I'm sure I did the SNPs. Um, um, I'm sure I did. The, and, and then uh, I treated her not knowing uh, what the research was showing. And when she had such a, 
uh, and really incredible response, I started to do a little research, you know, see what the connection might be. I mean, I was treating her for anxiety. Jeez. I wasn't treating her for anxiety. Yeah, I was going to say. I was going to say. I don't think. That... <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right. You know? She just happened to have endometriosis, and and the pain, you know, was obviously part of the, you know, the anxiety. But there were a lot of other reasons for the anxiety. But so, in the process of my treating her, her endometriosis disappeared, and it disappeared literally. Yeah. And I was like, well, "What's going on here? This is this is pretty odd. I don't think I'm doing anything that uh, should cause this." So I did some research, and and lo and behold, the research showed that there was a, a methylation defect is uh, it's a, a significant factor. So I think that that was just something I stumbled onto. Wow. All right. Another, that's another great pearl. Okay. So what, you know, what, what, what is, what does a clinician need, um, you know, to go into the, they're going into the office Monday morning. What would you say is a good take home for them? Uh, when when faced with treating depression, I mean, we all see individuals with mm-hmm. depression. It's you know, it's just such a huge issue today, mm-hmm. and so we're mm-hmm. all working, you know, and 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 you know, so you have your regular in the trenches functional medicine clinician or somebody new transitioning into this model. What kind of advice would you give them for actionable things? Okay, well, I mean, it's a, a few, few thoughts. Uh, I guess, first of all, for people who are moving into functional medicine, I would say don't build functional medicine around your practice. Build your practice around functional medicine. If you try to build functional medicine around your existing practice, it'll be difficult and frustrating, and you'll really be missing the essential benefits and joy of, of doing functional medicine. Right. Um, but if you say, I am doing functional medicine, and you adapt other things around that, then uh, it'll be transformative for you and for your patients. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. Do you, the other thing... Do you, then basically what you're saying is that you can't do functional medicine in a 15-minute visit. Is that one of your... I mean, yeah, I have I have to say that. I mean, it really goes against you know. We unfortunately there's a cross current here between the economics, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the science. The science is saying functional medicine, and the economics are saying uh, you got six minutes. Yeah, you know? right. So, uh, but no, I actually with uh, new patients would spend. Um, Three and a half hours, you know, taking history, reviewing records, physical exam, you know, um, and that I I didn't start doing that. I started by extending my evaluation, which was forty five minutes by fifteen minutes. Then I added on a little more and a little more. Got it. Um, you know, but uh, you you just uh, really make the the functional medicine the cornerstone and build around that. Okay. Um, in terms of depression, um, I think it's very important uh, in, in a general sense to really think of depression as a, uh, I like to look at it at different levels. I, I think of often about looking uh, with different lenses. So if you have a high-powered lens, you know, you're looking at the molecules. Uh, and if you lower the power of the lens a little bit, you know, maybe look at uh, 
uh, neurons uh, or glial cells. Mm -hmm. And if you lower it a little further, you maybe look at organ systems like the whole brain and brain circuitry or in the gastrointestinal link or the endocrine systems. And you lower it a little further, you look at, you know, the person as a whole and lower a little further, you you look at their psychology and... um, then back off a little more and you, you look at their relationship uh, with their wife, their husband, their children, their extended family, and then their community economics and their psycho-spiritual. Yeah. And then ultimately, what's the culture uh, that we live in? So, um, you know, it's really uh, depression operates at all those levels. And it's very important when you talk to a person with depression to help remove the stigma and to explain to them that, you know, What's happening to them, yes, they are experiencing it primarily, although their family and, say, their fellow employees are experiencing their depression to some degree being impacted by it. But fundamentally, they are just, what they're experiencing uh, is not their fault. It occurs in the context, a much broader context, uh, on all of those levels. But it is their responsibility. Mm. And, you know, and that's very important because someone comes into the office, you say, oh, you know, you have depression and it's biological and uh, here, take this pill or here, take these probiotics or, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's, that's way too simple. You need to help them understand that this is not all about them. It's not because they're deficient. It's really... Uh, I can't. I can't emphasize it enough. We have an epidemic of depression in this in this uh, Western world, and yeah. it's heavily influenced by the breakdown of families, by the cultural expectations, by income inequality, by you know chemical soup we're all swimming in, by yes. the stress response. You know, there's so many levels. So. I would say make sure you don't stigmatize the patient. Make sure you explain that to them and then use appropriate treatments. Figure out what are the pieces, what parts of the node of the matrix are playing a role. And I like to target them all at once whenever possible because if you want to change a system, the homeostatic setting, set point of a system, you need to attack if you can, at as many critical points as possible at the same time to bump things up. It's not always possible, but that, to me, makes the the most sense. Right. Thank you. Yeah, and it does, um, I think that you've finished some of the matrix nodes that um, I know I took you away from completely circling all of the IFM nodes and the influence, but, um, you know, I think you've addressed that and gotten into the psychosocial component, which I appreciate. Um, is there, is there, you know, just going back to the, the, the did gone, um, acronym, was there anything that you wanted to add to that? Cause I know we diverted. It's my fault, but any, any other piece um, around that? Yeah, I think endocrine is critical. Yeah. We, we, that, that's so important. Uh, you know, you can't have neuro, neuro, uh, neurological function. You can't have normal function of the beta receptors uh, without adequate T3, um, free T3, and uh, adrenal function obviously intimately related. And adrenal dysfunction, adrenal axis dysfunction is a big deal in depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. um, and, and really pretty much all PTSD, many, many psychiatric disorders. Um, I, I think then let's, let's 
you know, th- this did gone, if you'll, you may notice, doesn't have anything addressing the psychological or the social or the spiritual. And because as a psychiatrist, you know, I think about the psychological and social and spiritual as central yeah. um, to what I do. And I think, uh, so remember when you're using that, that there's no, <laughs> there is no place in there for what is most important, um, which is the person. I have, I have a patient who uh, had a gluten sensitivity, it appeared, uh-huh. and a lot of tendonitis and whatnot, and I used my product. Uh, uh, with him and um, and it helped him tremendously and he was under a great deal of stress when the stress was resolved he it's, it's remarkable but his, his gluten sensitivity disappeared and he was able oh. to come off the uh, my product because uh, I think the stress was causing a breakdown of his of his uh, gastrointestinal immune uh, uh, barrier mm-hmm. and and uh, so you can't forget the psychosocial because we, we have different uh, mind states that actually carry different physiologies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? If, you, if, if you switch into a, a mind state that uh, is happy, whatever the trigger is, your physiology changes. Right. Listen, I don't... Right? I don't I, I definitely don't hear many clinicians these days talk about resolving gluten sensitivity. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not. I'm not even promising that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. The main. The main point is the power of the psychology and the stresses. Yes. I, yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you know, his gut healed, and and then ostensibly he's not, right. he's not experiencing the fallout. Absolutely. Right, um, right. Okay, I appreciate going back to did gone. Yes, and that you stated the the whole socio spiritual piece, and and we did mention toxins. We got through that and oxidative stress and mm-hmm. inflammation. Um, mm-hmm. How you know you've given us a, all already wonderful cases, um, but how effective is functional medicine with bipolar disorders or very severe depression? Uh, you know, it's. Uh it's very effective. I know. Here's here's what I've found. I, I um, in recurrent depression, severe depression. I did a retrospective analysis in my own practice uh, after I was blown away, really, by functional medicine. I was like, well, I wonder, I wonder how this is really working. So I, I actually did a retrospective analysis of, and I really treat treatment resistant people and. Yeah. So what I, I had uh, 34 treatment-resistant uh, depressed patients, uh, and with the Beck depression inventory, uh, the mean was 39. Normal is under 10. Yeah. And I treated them with the functional medicine model, really making very little medication changes. Mm-hmm. And after 10 months, at the end of 10 months, uh, they were all under 10, wow. meaning their Beck, Beck depression inventory was normal, except for one person. Uh, so that that's how effective it is um, with recurrent depression, and I could give you case example after case example on that. Um, the uh, the bipolar disorder I separated out uh, mm-hmm. milder forms: bipolar two uh, or or cyclothymia or hypomania with milder depression, very treatable with functional medicine and the standard psychosocial approaches without meds. 
I've been able to take people off medications uh, really routinely. When it comes to bipolar type 1, the more severe psychotic mania and severe suicidal depressions, etc., uh, no, I haven't been able to treat people without medication, uh, but I certainly can. I, I don't go through multiple medication changes. We can reduce the meds to some degree. We get better response, fewer side effects, and you know, so many of these meds cause metabolic syndrome uh, over time, and we can reduce that and avoid that or even reverse it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and even uh, even in schizophrenia, you can have massive improvement, but the problem is always compliance. Yeah. That's always the issue, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I think, I, I personally think that we we know so much of what we need to know to help people get well. Uh, but people have trouble maintaining a healthy lifestyle, and I think that that change uh, really has to occur in groups, mm. and so we need to figure out ways of supporting people in terms of uh, you know their their changes in health. Yes, right. I, it, we've been talking a lot at my practice about you know d- d- establishing some kind of ongoing group support among, you know, among different populations, you know, for what, you know, mm-hmm. that have shared issues, be it, you know, weight loss, which is pretty standard or, you know, and how we might mm-hmm. be able to really leverage that. I know some functional medicine docs, you know, have done a nice job with that. And I do think, I do think you're absolutely right. We do a little detox program here and we have, you know, we have some group contact on Facebook and we have a group dial in and it's so fun. That, that, you know, that mm-hmm. one, you know, mid-detox meeting really keeps people going. Right. Um, so give, you know, one pearl. You've got, you've actually shared a lot of pearls with us today, tremendous number, and I'll try to capture them, folks, and write them down. But uh, what is one pearl you can give to clinicians that would increase their impact with their patients? Um, I would say say that um, the, the most important thing would be to listen. Mm. Now, that sounds easy, and we all think we listen, actually. We all think we listen, but um, it, listening is a, a discipline. Remaining silent and allowing space for somebody to really um, put it out and giving them the time to develop their thinking and to develop their story um, is very powerful. Uh, because I, if you've ever been to a doctor who actually listens, it actually has a, a very big effect on on how you feel then, but also on your hope for the uh, the partnership and and you know getting your health back. So, I mean, it sounds so simplistic, but you know not, that's what I would say. I mean, you can learn a science, but if you really listen, listen carefully, and l- make space for your patient to speak. Um, that'll be a, it's it's a very powerful thing. That's a wonderful note for us to end on, uh, Doctor Hadaya. Thank you. It's just been my a pleasure. Wonderful, great conversation. I've been over here taking copious notes <laughs> for my own practice. <laughs> now, how do people reach you? It's your website, or how do how do how do folks access yeah, I have you? A, I have a website. It's wholepsychiatry.com. Um, there are tremendous, it's over 200 pages, there are recordings and radio interviews and videos, and uh, I've got a two-hour 
presentation I gave to the Washington Psychiatric Association on uh, on whole psychiatry, and um, and then my the the website uh, for the the rejoint is Doctor H D R H like Doctor H Rejoint dot com, and I'm glad to answer any questions uh, that people have. You just contact me through actually either either site. Okay, and all of those links will be. Uh, right at the right next to the podcast, so you'll be able to access everything um, we've talked about today. Okay. Yeah, let me may say this: I have, if anybody's interested, I have spent hours making a very good diagram on inflammation and mood, and uh, and I can easily email that to people. It's, okay. Uh, it's it's very colorful, and, <laughs> and people seem to like it. Okay, good. I'll make a note. I'll make a note of that, and. Um, put a comment to that um, extent on the site. Okay, thanks again, Bob. Oh, my pleasure. Take care, Kara. Okay.